If you have been following this at all, we've been talking about how did we get here. And some of the things we've talked about, we've had to do in a very brief, you know, um, is that man attacking me with furniture? No. With um, very briefly, and therefore there are some more things to be said. And how to wrap this up was going to be interesting. And so uh, Trace uh, and I have known each other since December of 2001 when I moved up to uh, Michigan. Uh, I was living on the beach, kind of semi-retired, enjoying my life. Then 9-11 hit, and I realized I couldn't just sit anymore. Uh, and we got, a call, we got a lot of calls from Rochester, Michigan. And that's where I went up and spent 10 years and loved, absolutely loved being there. Trace uh, and his family have been friends of ours ever since and have truly been friends, not just we know each other. Uh, they've reached out to us and helped us in many, many ways. He has now got his Doctor of Education, correct? That's correct. All right. Is your microphone on? I think so. Is All right. <laughs> we we never look there, at you, right? Gil. Uh, I'll hold it a little closer and that'll work. There you go. Okay. Uh, and sociologist, and now at, was at Rochester College when I knew you, now you are at Lipscomb. I taught sociology. Ah. Well, that's almost there, but not quite. Well, they call me a minister. <laughs> we fudged the titles here. All right, I'll have good. a seat. So I'm going to let him tell you, set up the questions, and then he's going to ask me some questions. Somebody asked, yes, I've seen them. That doesn't help. They're complex questions. Uh, and he says he might throw me a, a slider, so set it up. Well, absolutely, I, and I think it's appropriate. You know, I, you've uh, put together a series of lessons here on our history for the Churches of Christ, and as a university professor, I understand the work, the time, the reading, the research, the energy that goes into putting together uh, a series of lessons like, like what you've given to us over the past several weeks, and I want to take a a moment to allow everyone to join me in just thanking you for all of the work that you put in. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Now we get to play stump the preacher. <clears throat> so in putting the questions together for this morning, I've attempted to address what I'm going to call a sociological perspective of the churches of Christ, which in and of itself is a loaded phrase. Uh, the purposes of this session, or for the purposes of this session, we want to move away from the weeds of our history and consider the role that God's church plays in the local, national, and global community given our history. Sociology is a social science that examines why people think and behave in the ways that they do, as well as the ongoing patterns of human behavior. It examines explanation or provides explanation of how history and culture shape our thinking and shape our behavior. What we have come to understand is that much of our thought patterns and behavior are shaped long before we ever have a chance to determine for ourselves or choose for ourselves. We're impacted by our history, by our culture, by our environments. Whether we admit to that impact or not, it is real, it is there. Now that doesn't mean that we can't change. But the reality is that so much of who we are is predetermined by our environment before we start making our own decisions about it. Now I tell my students that there's a significant danger about this aspect of who we are and most of us are blinded to it. We're social beings and we long to be accepted by the social groups that we're a part of and this aspect of who we are 
seduces us into being loyal members. Our very desire to be members of and accepted by our social group can and does override our ability to objectively understand and be aware of the impact that that socialization of that group has had on us and how we think, how we behave, and how we interact with others. Now, sociologists see this seduction as a very dangerous thing based on our history. Sociologists frequently criticize religion as a means by which those in power control and exploit those without power and who don't understand the socialization that is occurring to them. They see religion being used by those who have power and influence as a social control mechanism to enforce social, cultural, and religious norms. Now, last week in your sermon, you referred to these things as rules that we create, and in some instances, they're very serious um, and real consequences if those rules are violated, even up to and including the imposition of the death penalty. Mm-hmm. There are also very serious consequences if you are on the in-group or if you are on the out-group. Sometimes depending upon your adherence to rules and other times just because of who you are. Several weeks ago I was in Paris, France with a group of doctoral students and we were visiting the United Nations organization there and a UN delegate who had been working there for over three decades was talking with our group about the importance of education within our societies. He believed education and the pursuit of knowledge were essential to a peaceful society. He was speaking from a high-level view about what happened in the mid-20th century with all of the social circumstances that came together to give rise to Nazi Germany and the final solution that led to the murder of millions of Jews and gypsies and travelers and other types of folks there. And an interesting study to engage in is to look at how religion played a role in those events. He referred to the burning of books and the indoctrination of generations of people to a certain particular perspective of the world and the danger involved in that. And he quoted a German poet who wrote this statement. The womb that gave birth to the monster is still very much fertile. The womb that gave birth to the monster is still very much fertile. And he was speaking about Nazism, but from a sociological perspective, it doesn't have to be on the world stage. The same thing can and does happen in smaller communities and social groups and religious groups, and the oppression and indoctrination of people can come in many different forms. Sociologists study, study what happens to people when the information or, or any kind of information is suppressed from them and people are allowed to have access to to only certain types of perspectives. And there are severe social consequences to those who listen to and consider alternative viewpoints. And you've spoken, Patrick, many times <laughs> about how this has occurred in our movement, and, and not just ours, many others as well. We could talk for hours about religions across the globe and how they use their beliefs and practice to oppress, persecute, discriminate, otherwise disadvantage people, entire populations of people, and they will condemn their people to death for listening to and considering other points of view, and they'll do that while claiming that it is the will of God that they do so. So for the past several weeks, You've been leading us through the history of the Churches of Christ in the U.S., and we consider the role of God's church 
um, uh, the, the, the role that God's church plays locally, nationally, and globally. So given that history and given that backdrop, my first question to you is a high-level one. Okay. Where might you see our movement having crossed the line from being a group that simply wanted to follow and serve Christ to being one that became something much darker for many people? And our leaders defended their actions with the claim that it was simply the will of God that it be done that way. Well, I, n- I noticed what the question is not. It's not, did we get started on the right foot? Uh, what were our, our starting presumptions that might have led to a problem down the road? But rather, well, how did we change from being a movement that just wanted to follow and serve Christ into becoming this more restrictive, um, exclusive movement? You know? And I think you see two things at play. One is the Civil War. When you see people die, when you see your children starve, when people have uh, destroyed your home, you want justice and you tend to play the God card because you have nothing else. You can't call upon a a court or whatever, so you have to play God card. God likes me more than you and God's going to get you and then you begin to do the whole separation thing. And the, the other is the second generation effect. In every movement, the first generation starts with principles and excitement and um, yeah, momentum, and then the second generation starts to form the rules of how this is to be looked upon in the future. And by the third generation, you just have to accept the rules. It's not a movement anymore, it's an institution. And so I think the combination of the Civil War and the second generation effect, both of which hit at the same time, uh, really sped up our institutionalization. And anytime you institute something, you are also deinstitutionalizing, or that's not really the word, you're excluding all those outside the institution. That's really where I'd go, because if you can't, if you can't even fellowship your brother who you used to because they're from the North and the North issued a declaration, their churches, issued a declaration against your churches, you're not going to be putting your arms around the Baptist or Catholics either. You're, you're going to start. Well, let me follow up then with this quite very direct question that I think, given the history of what you've pointed to, deserves a direct answer. What is your reaction? And this is not in your notes, I'm sorry. What is your reaction to the stained history of our attempts to establish rules and enforce conformity to the extent of imposing the spiritual death penalty, and in some cases in our broader history in Christendom, even a physical death penalty. Yeah, I, um, I mourn for what we've done with Jesus and his name. I, I mourn <laughs> about it, because we turned it into crusades. We turned it into, and he was talking about, um, you know, you're in or out sometimes by where you were born. Uh, and, and what society you're in, but also what happened to you. Some of you were divorced for no, you didn't want to be divorced. You were faithful, you were good, but the other person was not. And all of a sudden in our society, you, in our church society, as a divorced person, it was like wearing a scarlet letter. This was not, this is not of God. What we did to get there, and I'm not sure I'm really following, I, I think I've, I've jumped the, the, the shark here on, on one thing, I've jumped the rails at least. Um, we started ignoring Jesus because he didn't give us enough rules, and so we started digging in Paul. 
to try to structure our church. To, uh, we, I guess he, we thought he gave us all of the ins and outs and the rules and the ups and downs that Jesus forgot to or something. And because of this, we, um, we, became this, we became something that didn't look like Jesus anymore. Uh, and therefore, we were not attractive. We were not, like Peter was saying, advertisements for God. It was, um, I mean, what's one of the first things atheists will tell you? If there is one God, then why so many churches? Well, it wasn't God's fault, but we all did it in his name. So we have sullied his name. Is that even close to what you were looking for? I think so. Okay. We all exist at a certain point in history, within a certain social environment, context. We make decisions based on the knowledge that's available to us, and this leads us to act and behave in certain ways based on our understanding. Uh, For example, Saul was zealous for the Lord, and yet he persecuted Christians. He stood there approving of the mob that was throwing stones at Stephen. Um, What should we think of people as we examine our history, and as you have done, who have come before us, who by all accounts appear to be very zealous for the Lord, but who we now see as having unknowingly contributed to persecution, oppression, discrimination, uh, of populations of people because they either didn't abide by all the rules or they didn't fit within our, our idea of what we should be? I think that's a very valid question, in particular for Fourth Avenue. We have experienced a bit of freedom, have we not? And we're enjoying that. The tendency then is to pick up the rocks again, but this time choose different targets. Instead of throwing them at the liberals, throw them at those Stone Age, Neanderthal churches we grew up in. And I think that's a mistake. I I take my cue from Campbell, uh, Alexander Campbell, who wrote in the Lunenburg letter when he was asked, do you have to be baptized to be saved? And his response is that baptism is absolutely part of God's plan, but he would not make the statement that you're not saved if you're not baptized. He says that makes baptism the one thing. But in his explanation, he used a phrase. He said, we are to walk by the light that we have. Paul said something very much about this. He said, I have lived in all good conscience until this day. In other words, what he did, he did in good conscience. The fellow that wrote me the letter I I talked about last week, six pages, single-spaced type that was really not pleasant, I wrote him back. I could have destroyed his arguments, but that's not the point. I just told him I'm sorry that he did not have a pleasant experience here and that I hope that he gives us another chance and comes and that the next time he'll enjoy his time with us more. That's it. Why? Because I found that once I started tasting freedom, one of the first things I wanted to do was to attack those that I used to be a part of. But when I was in there, I did it because I thought that's what God wanted. So, I don't think we should be spending our time attacking them either. I think our empty hands and open arms have to include them. From your perspective, what was it about us This is a two-part question, by the way. What was it about us or our religious culture that led us to stray from the inclusive message of being Christians only 
to an exclusive and legalistic posture. And in regards to this, the second part, what do you see, or do you see any parallels of what happened to our movement and what we learn about from the New Testament writings of the first century church? Do any parallels exist there? On the first part, um, very cogent statement as you started this laying out where we come from. We cannot forget that our movement began in a time of millennial fervor. They truly believed that with the establishment of the United States that all things had become new on the planet and that you'd come from nowhere to world power after 1812. And, and now you're going to take your place in a place of freedom and God brought you here. How many times has God mentioned in the founding documents? God brought you here. That millennial movement that gave rise to this was this God is at work and he's about to come back and it's going to finish everything. But to get him back, we have got to establish the perfect society for him to come back to. So you have not only our movement, but the Mormons who did the same thing. And a ton of other groups, the Christadelphians and others who did that, whose names are not that well known to you, but also secular kind of religious or just fringe religious like the Shakers, like the Oneida community in New York. Even atheistic millennialism, which is hard to understand, but like the New Harmony group in Indiana, they were, form they were buying territory and building towns to establish the perfect community for Christ to come back. And in fact, our first, Alexander P. Uh, Campbell's first periodical was called The Millennial Harbinger. It's all going to be made perfect. Now, to make it perfect, you've got to know what the rules are. And you've got to find those rules, and you've got to hold them, keep them. It's, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it's like a magic act. If you don't do it right, you don't get the rabbit. So we have to do it right. And we have to be pure. That's why so many of them were anti-sex, like Shakers and the United Community and the like. Um, and that's why they're not here, actually. It's because you don't, you don't really have a lot of Bible school classes for the little Shakers. Um, but uh, the point being, I think it was that. And then after Jesus didn't show... There was, um, by the way, people kept thinking he's coming with the next war. And so the Civil War, they thought he was coming. Uh, then they were certain he'd come during World War II. Or I'm sorry, World War I. Not so much World War II, but World War I. And so that whole time was, not only are we forming our rules to make it great for Jesus to come back, but then when he didn't come back, another one did not really look like a fool. You had to keep doing what you were doing. This is so, and I do not mean to upset whoever wrote this, but this is so much a part of us that the question boxes, this wasn't a question. It was a long plea from a, a sweet heart, I'm sure, saying we're not baptizing enough. We need to be doing invitation songs and singing, oh, why not tonight? You've been baptizing more this year than you've baptized in a long time here. But we can't see it because our traditions are what gave us comfort in our troubles. And that we have built a community waiting for Jesus to come back and say, you did it right. I, I, that's the first part. The second part, um, we are the Jews and the Pharisees in the stories of Paul. 
Of course we are. Because they also said, yes, we believe in Jesus, but he likes stuff this way. Do stuff this way. And if we were really to read Paul the way Paul was written, we would be, this word is awful, appalled at, um, at how much freedom he actually gave people. We read him as if he was throwing down rules constantly. But if you read the rules for one community, they're different than the other. It was, no, form your community around Jesus. And they put him in prison for it. Because too much freedom is scary. Um, we first moved here. Here's an example. You, don't, you may not like this, but it's, you know, facts are facts. And we first moved here, and the newspapers were full of, there's a new Tennessee law that may be you could carry a concealed firearm in a public park. And people are going, we don't want guns there. Well, all of the facts and figures say that you'll actually be safer if you allow it. But people didn't care about the facts. They cared about what they felt. You can never out-argue a feeling with a fact. So whether or not you like guns, that's not the point. The point is the feelings trumped the facts. They always do. They always do. This next question I want to get in because it comes from one of our young people, and I, I think it's very important they be represented uh, in this discussion. And the question is, what can we do to collectively influence our young people to not repeat the mistakes of the past within our movement or be captive to the same worldview that contributed to us getting off track from the true message of grace that comes through Christ? And how do we best move forward from that? Well... You're going to hear the same song, different verse. Our sermon should be more about love and less about law. We should be more wrapped around service than a worship service. And we should lay aside our politics so that our children are encouraged to intervene in the name of justice. And I'm aware that justice is a loaded word. Both the right and the left use it. I do not believe it's justice to say that man is hungry. You have to feed him. And that's what the left tends to do. The right tends to say that man is hungry. He should work harder. We're not left or right. We say that man is hungry. I'm going to bring him into my life. Find out who he is and what he needs and intervene personally for that individual. But to do that, you have to lay aside the right and the left. And a lot of us, uh, the Churches of Christ, wrap themselves around the GOP. And presently, most of the young preachers are wrapping themselves very publicly around the Democrats. And I shake my head at both. No, we, are, we do not belong to these parties. We have to give our children permission to seek justice and to obligate us when they see a need, when they see a hard bargain situation to say, this church is going to show up here and take care of it and come to us and tell us. But we can't do that if all we're talking about are rules about who you fellowship, what kind of music God likes, and worship services. All of those unbiblical things. We have to let our children, um, there's a word and I'm trying to find it now actually. 
embarrass us, obligate us, and shock us by who they love and who they put their arms around and give them the power to do it. More service, more love, more intervention and justice, less law, less looking for the magic formula. Well, in follow-up to that, and you mentioned a moment ago uh, traditions. So based on your presentations, we spent a great deal of time in, in our Church of Christ movement wrestling with and understanding our laws and mm -hmm. our traditions. From a sociological perspective, traditions can be important to uh, shape identity and form community, but we also know that traditions change and new traditions are constantly being created. The Bible is full of examples of traditions being established, and some of these traditions appear to be directly linked to the nature and spirit of God, and others, however, seem to be more focused on us and our preferences and our likes uh, rather than anything that God said about himself. So what is your perspective about how we constructively move forward and discern what is law and what is tradition and what can and should be allowed to evolve? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not opposed to traditions at all. I, I own two kilts. There you are. I have a backup kilt. We're waiting for you to wear one one Sunday. You know, I would, but it's just unfair to the other men, frankly. Um, the, the awesomeosity that I exude in the kilt is just, it can be overwhelming. It is a word. I just used it. That makes it a word. Modesty, too, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. I, I, I did a lesson on humility last year and nailed it. Um, the... Uh, when you, when you have any tradition, the, answer, the question you must ask is, why do we do it and does it exclude anyone? There are some traditions which are community-wide. For example, listen to Christmas music. Why is it so hard to get a new classic Christmas song? Because we don't want one. The community seems to be happy with it. One of these days, that may and then when it changes, we change. But what about our songs? What about our traditions? One of the, I, last week I brought up that I don't listen to Gaither music, and you would have thought that I had just slapped Jesus's mommy. <laughs> I got phone calls from people. I got two emails, but I got three phone calls. Not the same people. What do you have again? No, I just, I don't like it. Do you like bagpipe music? Some of you do for five minutes. But would you like to listen to a triple CD set? Probably not. You would think, well, someone's slowly backing over a cat. I mean, what's, what's going on? You don't have to like what I like. But our traditions are the things we all must agree upon. Therefore, they must be constantly asked. I mean, for example, I don't think that the new way we're taking communion is the way we need to be doing it always. I think that we've got to find a way to mix it up to make it more effective. We've, we're trying this. We're going to try something else. The danger is you try this and people say, I like this. This is the only way it can be taken. No, 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 no. We've got to mix that up. We've got to find a way to not exclude by our new tradition. That means we have to listen to our teens, but also to our older folk who have traditions too. 
and find some way to communicate with each other. Traditions are fine as long as they do not exclude. And so if you, if I, if you guys said, well, we like our ministers to wear a robe and have a vestment and all this other, I might not choose to be your minister, but there's nothing wrong with that. There's fine. It is whatever tradition works for your community and your area. The reason I don't want us to sing Gaither songs much, by the way, the words are great. It's the Southern Gospel heritage, and some of you are going, oh, we love that. But is that what is in Williamson County today? Is that the people who are moving in? You have to sing the songs of your target. So while you can sing some songs of those old, you also have to be paying attention to what's around you so that your tradition does not exclude the others. And that's, um, I have not found the magical formula there. I don't think there is one. I think that's a community discussion thing, and our churches are not set up for discussion. They are set up for all of you to face one person while they speak, and I think that's detrimental. Not sure what to do about it. What's our drop dead time? it's normally about 11.40, isn't it? Okay, very good. Yeah. Um, you spent an awful lot of time preparing the history for us and being able to walk through that history with us. And there was a lot there, very candidly. There was just a whole lot to absorb. So if you were to list three, just for our own memory, if you were to list three main historical and or cultural events or factors since the beginning of our movement, dating back to Thomas Campbell in the early 1800s, that influenced who we are today and that you would want us to remember, what would those be and why? I want you to remember that when, and and please listen to my heart here. I have to speak about America and some of the American myths that are a problem. You know, there's an American myth that you can be whatever you want to be. No, you can't. Have you seen the auditions for American Idol? <laughs> I can't play the, in the NBA, not even if I'd started when I was three and four training. No, physiologically impossible. There are other American myths, and remember that our movement was born before there was an America where it was. It was in Western Pennsylvania and in the new territories and the colonies now had become a country, but in 1809, that wasn't much, it didn't mean much at that stage. Not in the Western Reserve, which is what that that area was called. And so an Irish Scotsman writes a thing on freedom. He wasn't trying to do a declaration of independence. But what happened was we lost this, and with the American, rah-rah Americanism, We'd leapt on every cultural bandwagon, whether it was the Civil War, God's on our side, Somerism, where God likes the way that I think about things best, and now we've got to create a movement, to American fundamentalism, to the change in government, and, and leaping onto another political party. We started jumping on cultural bandwagons, and we've got to get off of them. All of them, even the ones I like. We have to get off of them. Um... I don't know how many times people have come to me and said, we want you to preach about homosexual marriage. It's not that big an issue in our congregation, number one. Number two, heterosexuals has nearly killed it. What do you want me to say? Three, 
why don't we talk more about how to love them rather than trying to figure out what legal definitions of marriage are because God never gave us one. And people don't like that. Why? We have a cultural bandwagon. We want to be on it. We want an enemy. What I don't want us to forget is when Thomas Campbell wrote the Declaration and Address, he positively eliminated the possibility we could have an enemy. It was all who come. All who come. It was over time we started saying if, 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 and narrowed the circle. That's the number one. I'd want us to remember we were, like Galatians 5.1, we were born in freedom. We should stay free and not forget it. Just like you didn't want to be taxed two and a half percent on your breakfast beverage, so you shot us, and now you're taxed more <laughs> because you forgot. Don't forget freedom. I think another was that we, uh, the Campbells tried very, very hard not to be in charge of their church until Alexander did change. And he became another version of the Kirk of Scotland with teaching elders and all that other. And, they, and I'll talk about Scotland there. Shouldn't have done it. It was bad. It didn't do the church in Scotland any good. And it's not done any here where we set up boards and we call them elders. And they do the, you know, all of that we've talked about. So what were we born in? I think simple faith, simple freedom, and accepting of everybody around the table. We lost those things. That's, as you can already tell, in six months. It's a passion of mine to get that back. Thank you. Um, we, I think we have time for one more question here. And, uh, I'm going to switch away from a sociological perspective more towards an, a leadership perspective. I also teach uh, many organizational leadership uh, courses. And I'm very interested, and I want to give you one last opportunity here at the end of this series to talk about vision. It's so important to understand your vision of, of where do you think we need to go. And I, I want to give you an opportunity to articulate again to us vision for, for the future, for yourself, and, and also for, for us collectively. Well, just briefly, you want to talk about the human instinct when it comes to vision. I've let people know, and I've even shopped it around a bit. Here's what I'm looking for for a new vision for Fourth Avenue. And people read it and they'll go, yeah, but you need to mention. Yeah, but you need to mention. And they want to start adding. And after a while, the barnacles overwhelm the boat. But everybody's afraid. If you don't mention it, then people don't need, know, know we stand for it. Even to the point where in a short vision statement, somebody wanted me to put in about six-day creation. And I went, back off. No, no, no. Isn't it fascinating that John the Apostle was the oldest living apostle we, that there was. The others died violently. The stories we have are very good that, uh, and reliable that he lived into his 90s. They would bring him in to preach uh, on a litter because he couldn't stand at that point. He'd raise himself up on the elbow and speak for a few minutes and then lower himself down. But they, they wanted him to speak. And every Sunday, every, every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they gathered all the time. He would say the same thing. Little children love one another. That was the vision. They begged him, give us a new commandment. And he rose up on his elbow, according to Polycarp, and said, little children, a new commandment I give unto you. Love one another. We've got to strip our vision down to that of Jesus Christ. Jesus.
love one another. By doing that, we redeem the world. You also mentioned, what's my vision for me? I'm 57. Uh, 57 is not as old as it used to be. I understand that. You know, our, our uh, nutrition, everything's changing. But I don't expect to be your minister for 15 or 20 years. I need to be finding my replacements. I need to be training them. I believe that every Christian leader, that includes every shepherd, every ministry leader, every Bible class teacher, who is not actively looking to find replacements should be replaced. Because they are not building the kingdom, they're building their kingdom. I don't want to ever be mentioned in the history of the churches of Christ. That's not what I'm doing this for. I want Jesus to shine so much nobody ever sees me. And that's my vision. I will work here as long as I'm effective here. But when I'm not, I want to have trained enough people who love Jesus in a different way. It won't look like me or sound like me. And that's not an accent thing. I mean, they'll, they'll have different vision. They'll have different... I want them to be able to step up, male and female, to take us into whatever the Holy Spirit is doing next. If I may share my heart with you, I want to ask you a question. We were told that the Bible books were all settled and sealed, but I want to ask you, who said that? Who told us the Holy Spirit was done? He didn't. I believe that God is doing something new now. And I want to do whatever God is doing. And whenever I can't do it, I want to have the grace and intelligence to step off and let somebody else take it. That's my vision for me. But for us, I could not be more excited about what Fourth Avenue can do. You have no idea how many thousands of times people download the lesson every Sunday. All over the world. Because this church is leading something here. And my vision is that that dream of Thomas Campbell and, dare I say, of John the Apostle lives here. Any other questions? Or All right. Thank you for your attention. You will be dismissed to your other classes next week, and there will be much rejoicing. Uh, but, but thank you so much. God bless. Cheerio. Go away. <laughs>